0: If you've brought your Bibles, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Way back there at the very end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, to the uh, second chapter. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read to you about the church at Pergamos uh, this morning. Um, This is the Compromise Church, or the Church of Compromise. And compromise, not, not, I don't mean that in a good way either. The church in Pergamos. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. And the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast... They are them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to ye think sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them the hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you one more time this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the good day and the many blessings. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here this morning. And, Lord, we just pray as we come, uh, as we come together here this morning. First of all, my heart's prayer is that everyone is here uh, with their hearts right, ready to uh, hear your words here this morning, that each one would have ears to hear what you would say by your spirit here this morning. Each one of us is eager to to walk close to you, to learn more about you, uh, to be a witness for you. But Lord, if there's any among us here that doesn't know you, if there's any that are lost and undone, any that are not sure where they stand this morning, if there's anybody here that has, even for a moment, a question in their mind, what will happen to them after they die? I pray that today would be the day that they would get things right with you and get the assurance that can only come from you, right? That they know, that they know that they're a child of yours. Lord, that they would repent before it's too late and get things right with you. Lord, that's my prayer this morning. And so, Lord, I'm just asking that you would just move in a mighty way in our midst and our service. God, that you'd open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Lord, that we would be receptive of it, that we would let it take a, a lodging place deep in our hearts. Lord, that it might grow and transform us from the inside out into the image of your son. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave you here this morning and transform church. Lord, that, this, uh, that the church at Pergamos would be a good lesson for us, but something that we're not in danger of. So, Lord, I'm just praying, Lord, move by your sweet Holy Spirit in our midst in a mighty way. Have your way, have your will here in our midst. God, let your presence be known and felt here. Your spirit move among us, and we'll be sure and give you every bit of the glory for it. And, Lord, let me ask one more thing of you. I need your help. I can't preach a lick without you, and I know that. I have nothing to say lest you give it to me. And so, Lord, I'm asking for your anointing, for your holy unction this morning. I'm asking, Lord, that you would just move, uh, Lord, and that you would just fill me full of your Holy Spirit. God, that you would anoint me from on high. Lord, that you'd clear my mind of everything but your message, your thoughts, your words, and place on my tongue the very things that you'd have me to say this morning. And, Lord, that I might be able to preach from my spirit to their spirit, and they would know that it has come uh, from you through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we'll be sure and give you every bit of the glory for it. Lord, we love you this morning. We worship you. We praise your holy name. And we ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I want to go through this um, church at Pergamos uh, here this morning. Um, We're just going to walk through it. I'm going to talk about and explain some of these things and and then try to make the point that God has given me to make here this morning. Uh, as we look in the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation is full of the number of seven, right? You, you, you see seven over and over and over and over, right? There, there's seven churches here in chapters 2 and 3, right? There's seven seals. There's seven vials, There's seven, uh, you, you know, there's seven angels, right? We just go through that. There's seven beasts. We just see this over and over and so we have the seven, or we have the seven churches, um, seven letters to seven churches here in chapters two and three. Uh, it's debated on what exactly this means, and there's a couple interpretations to it that are very likely. Uh, as a matter of fact, in my stance is I think probably both are true. Some see the seven churches as representative of the different ages. In other words, you could take the history of the church from beginning to end, and divided up into seven periods. And each one of these churches, in order, would represent each one of those um, periods. And if that is the case, then that puts us in the period of the seventh church, the church of Laodicean, right? The lukewarm church. And that's very fitting. I, I, I can completely see that. But also, uh, I've seen some interpret this as being, these, these represent seven different kinds of, of churches right types of churches and you see those types or kinds of churches in really every community that you would go into right there's some that are lukewarm there's some who've lost their first love there's some who've compromised with the world and really I see I can see the I can see the truth in that's what I'm trying to say I, I I can absolutely I wouldn't want to argue with somebody that have that interpretation as well I can see some truth there but the one thing that we cannot forget is this is seven real churches that actually existed at the time uh, that God gave this to John to write. These are actually seven letters to seven churches from Jesus himself. I mean, it was dictated, right, uh, through the Apostle John. But this is seven letters to seven churches that were in existence were up and going, had congregations meeting on a regular basis with pastors in the whole nine yards. And this is dealing with real issues and real problems that they were having, things that they had to deal with. Something else to keep in mind is all seven of these churches, not a single one of them is open today. Not a single one of them. You can't go to the church of... Pergamos and visit the same church that the Lord wrote to here, it's, it's closed down, long, closed down, along with all the rest of them. So we look here, and let's just walk through this, okay? We look at verse 12, and it says, into the angel, all right? Remember, angel, literal, the word angel is a transliteration of the, of the Greek word here, and it literally means um, messenger. Right? It literally means messenger. When we think of angel, we think of a spiritual being. Right, we think of something like a guardian angel or something like that. Is usually what comes to mind. But it, but the word literally means messenger. And so, wh- wh- who is he talking to here? What is he talking about? Who is the angel? Right, uh, uh, and it says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamus write." Right. So he's saying, "Write this to the angel at the church of." Pergamos. So is he talking about writing to a spiritual being? Is he talking about the pastor? Is he talking about a ruling, uh, a, a ruling elder? Right. I mean, either way, it's either a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger. And I guess just one thought I'll throw out there, and I don't know the answer to that, but one thought I'll throw out there before I move on, is why would Jesus instruct John to write a letter to a spiritual being? I have trouble with that making sense, but maybe the case. Anyways, as we look here at verse twelve, it says to the church in Pergamos, right? Right. So Pergamos, right? This 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 um, this city was about. If you look it up, it was about. It, it the city doesn't even exist. There's another city there now, but it's about fifty miles north of Smyrna, right? That's one of the other churches that he writes to here. Uh, it was the leading religious center of of all kinds of various pagan worship in that part of the world. I think there was like four pagan cults that was based out of there. And so anyway, so there was a lot of that that was going on there. And then he says, um, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. The sharp sword with two edges is the powerful word coming out of Christ's mouth, right? We see that imagery, right? We start to see that in chapter 1. We see that come to a head in chapter 19 when Jesus shows up at the Battle of Armageddon leading this great army, right, heaven's army, and there's this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Well, that sharp two-edged sword coming out of Christ's mouth is the Word of God, right? It is the Word of God. This is the Word by which Jesus Will judge all, right? This word is powerful both to judge and to save. So that's what it's talking about there when it's talking about the sharp sword with two edges. And in verse 13, he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Pergamus was the also the center of what was what they referred to or called, or what we would refer to or call emperor worship. You, 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 don't, you don't see that much today. Um, the Japanese culture, I know they used to worship their emperor as a god. Um, There's the North Koreans Right, they they view their leader and worship him as a god, uh, their uh, political leader. So you see that in a few places, but you don't see that today like you did there. So it's the center of the of emperor worship, right? Of the worship of Caesar, uh, it is the the worship of Zeus was also very popular there. I think that's why you notice in this verse twice, right? It, it refers to Satan's seed is being the place where Satan's seed is, and the the end where Satan. Dwelleth, right? I think this is why Jesus called Pergamos the place where Satan's seat is. Right, his seat is, you know, his throne. Christians were persecuted there very harshly, maybe more so than in any of the other places of the seven uh, churches. Right, they were they were persecuted because they refused to engage. in in this worship, right? This worship of these idols and these pagans and all of this uh, uh, silliness and nonsense. And as a matter of fact, for them not to engage in the emperor worship, the worship of Caesar, right? Of uh, Earlier it would have been Augustus, later it would have been Nero, and, and so on and so forth, right? Because they would not engage in that, they were actually considered disloyal and unpatriotic. Now, look, can I just say something real quick here? It's not necessarily the point of my message, but it's something that needs to be said. Probably what you're visualizing of what their worship of the emperor looked like, what you're visualizing in your mind right now is probably not accurate. Probably, probably the picture you've got in your mind is not complete, 100%, totally, all the time accurate. If you study this, and I didn't like this, and you're not going to like it either, but it needs to be said, if you, if you study this and what their worship looked like, what well, most of their of their worship, and I've been avoiding the word here, festivals, celebrations, look like. It looked a whole lot closer to what we do and the way we ha- have things on 4th of July, President's Day, our Pledge of Allegiance. Now, I'm not saying that that is what we're, what we're engaged in. We don't view our president as a God. But I'm going to be honest with you, at times, we walk dangerously close to that line. Do you remember how some people thought about Obama? Could you see under the right circumstances somebody coming up? And listen, it goes it goes on both sides. It goes on both sides, right? Look at how some uh, uh, you know view presidents in the past, especially after they die, and they've done good things. Look at how some view Reagan, for instance. You know, you could see where he could go too far. Go on back. Now we've never looked at George Washington as a God, but you can see where it's not. For some people, it might not be quite such a large step. So anyways, that my point is, is what they were doing, obviously, is not the same necessarily as what we do. But sometimes I worry that we're a little bit dangerously close. And so the question for them, right, let, let's get back to the context here. The question for them was, should you take part in what was considered normal civic life, which, in, which involved all this worship, that was disguised as celebrations. If you go through and you really study in the New Testament, Paul specifically addresses, because this was common, this was something the Christians was dealing with in a lot of communities, not just here at Pergamos. And so anyways, Paul specifically addresses these issues in two of his letters. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapters, I think it was like chapters 8, 9, and 10. In Romans chapter 14, he ad- he addresses it. And he gives very careful, specific advice that there is should there, there would be, there should be no Compromise whatsoever with pagan temples and the cult, but if you'll remember, he gave them some flexibility on food and drink, right? And he gave them kind of some guidelines there. Now, the temptation is always the with them, it was always the and with us, too, it's always the. There's no point in making a fuss, right? There's no point in standing out, right? Uh, we're part of society, so let's just go with the flow. Hmm. Does that sound familiar with some of the things that we deal with today? The situation for Christians in, in Pergamos was uh, even worse because it was the center of so many of these than it was in places like Smyrna, for instance, Matter of fact, it tells us in the scripture that a faithful man by the name of Antipas had already been killed. Now, we don't know this because the scripture doesn't tell us really anything about him other than he was a martyr and that, uh, that the Lord considered him faithful, right? Tradition says that he was actually the pastor of the church there and that he had actually been burned alive on a pagan altar in 92 AD, in the year 92 AD. Now I don't know, we don't know if that's if that's what happened or not. That's what tradition says. My point is is Jesus here praises or commends the church at Pergamos because they remained faithful in the midst of such satanic influence and heavy persecution. Can you could you imagine? Could you imagine? Just, just, just imagine society goes a step further than what it is right now. And listen to me. It is only one small step further than what it is right now. And what if, what if they demand some sort of worship from us? What if there is some leader that comes into place later on, right? Or there is, you know, it's the culture itself, right? It's some of the things that we see that culture is deeming as as normal that we recognize as sin, right? Homosexuality, right? This changing of genders. And I mean, we could go on and on and on. And what if they had somebody that that come up to such a level, right, uh, in the midst of all that to be worshipped? And the scenario here... Is your pastor, because we refuse, they come get your pastor and they kill him. That's what happened to this church. And Jesus is praising them. Because even in that, right? They're thinking whenever, the government is thinking when they come with that kind of force, all of you sitting out there is going to be like, whoa, wait a minute. It's not worth dying for. But they were wrong. They were wrong. And he praises them for that. He praises them for that. And he says, even in the midst of all that, right? You guys did not deny the faith. Did not deny the faith. In other words, you stayed true. You held held fast to the name of Jesus. And did not deny the faith, even in the midst of all that. We look at the next verse of verse 14. But they weren't perfect. They were far from it. They're the church of compromise, remember? I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to cast his stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed unto a- idols, and to commit fornication. Now, if you remember Balak or Balak, however you say his name, he was the king of Moab, right? He's the one that tried to hire the prophet uh, Balaam, right? You can go back. What is that? Numbers chapter twenty-two, three and four, somewhere in there that you can read about that. Anyways, he tried to hire Balaam to curse Israel. And that backfired. That didn't work out, right? God prevented Balaam uh, from cursing uh, uh, Israel. Uh, and Balaam advised, and so therefore, Balaam ended up invi- advising uh, the king, Balak, uh, to use the Moabite women to seduce the I- uh, Israel into committing um, sexual immorality, fornication with them, right? Both physical and spiritual adultery because that's what went along with that, right? Is is they committed fornication and, and adultery with the women and they end up offering sacrifices to those women's idols. And it says here that the church at Pergamos was tolerating the same kind of false teachers, the same kind of nonsense who was enticing Christians to commit both, probably both physical and spiritual adultery, adultery, but we know for sure spiritual adultery, right? Well, what does that mean, spiritual adultery, right? That's cheating on God right? Do you understand? That's why the comparison is made all the time, right? If I commit adultery, it means I cheated on Jennifer. If we commit spiritual adultery, it means we cheated on God, right? I am supposed to be true to her and her alone. No one else in my life, right? Am I to be that kind of relationship with, intimate with. And that is the same with God. We're to be true with God, right? He is the only one that we are to have that kind of spiritual, intimate relationship and when we play around with our idols, we cheat, we commit adultery spiritually. So that's what is happening here. What the doctrine of Balaam is, is the compromise of Christianity, in this case, with what we would refer to as paganism. It results, that is, what that is, is spiritual adultery. It's cheating on God with idols. We would see it today as compromising with the world. We would see it today as letting the things of the world into into the church. Right? Here's the thing. We are in a day and a time where we are seeing that physically manifest itself and take place. Right? Ever been to a church or heard of a church or seen a church when you walk into it? And there is absolutely... It would be hard to tell the difference other than the words and the lyrics of the songs. It would be hard to tell the difference between whether or not it's a Sunday morning church service or a Saturday night club. I'm talking bar, that whole scene, right? Singing and dancing and all that. That's the physical manifestation of the spiritual adultery that has been taking place in the hearts of who is supposed to be faithful to God for a long time. That is the physical manifestation of it, just going along with the culture, right? Just might as well embrace it, right? It's really not that bad because of the things that we've let into our lives and into our hearts into our homes and our families for decades. If you look at verse 15, it says, So hast thou also them that hold. Right? So, so hast them also. Right? So we're tying verse 14 and 15 together. So hast hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Whatever the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is, is something that Jesus hates. Now again, The scripture does not tell us what the Nicolaitans is. We have, when I say tradition, we have writings from the pastors of the churches that were shortly after this time period. So, according to their writings, the Nicolaitans was a sect of Christianity, or had branched off of Christianity, that they associated themselves by name. With the deacon from Acts chapter six by the name of Nicholas, now that doesn't mean that he practiced the false doctrine they did, but something from his teachings, something from what he had wrote or said, they had took and ran with to the, till they got to the point of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and according to those pastors. It it was apparently a teaching that said that Christians could engage in immoral behavior. They could engage in sin without any consequences. Well, first of all, we already just read about there's a problem with spiritual adultery there. There's a problem with all the celebrations and all the festivals and all the partying that went along with it, compromising with those things of the world. There's somebody there teaching that, you know what? It's okay. You can engage in that immoral and that sinful behavior and there will not be any consequences. That's exactly what they wanted to hear. Isn't that what the flesh wants to hear? I don't mean to be on a soapbox, but you know what that sounds like to me? I almost should just call Mike's name. I know he'd say it. Once saved, always saved. Right? You're a Christian, right? That's what was taught here. You're you're saved. You're a Christian. Well, if you, for whatever reason, decide to engage in this sinful, immoral behavior, you can do it without consequences. Ain't that what that is? Anyways, I don't know if that's exactly, that's surely not exactly how they said it. And I don't know exactly what their teaching was, but we know right from history that it was something like that. Listen to me. The church cannot participate in, it cannot tolerate the, the feast of the idols, right? Idolatry. Uh, you know, in, in the church today, we wouldn't tolerate straight up outward idolatry like that. But what about the other things that we tolerate, right? What about, what about pornography? What about actual physical adultery? What about fornication? What about sodomy? What about cheating? What about gossiping? Uh, what about lying? Really, we tolerate sin by bowing to the pressures of society. How many things have we finally just kind of, we don't really like it, but we've got used to it, and we just put up with it? Are you getting that away about homosexuality? Well, the church is. Every time I'm around a big group of church leaders and pastors and stuff. Now I'm not talking about somebody that's way I'm not talking about uh, you know Anglicans or, or uh, episcopalians or any any group like that. I'm talking about people like us. The talk is more and more relaxed and accepting. Right? Because we're being we're we're we're, we're having it right in our faces. All the time. And we're becoming desensitized to it. And we're knowing more and more people who are openly participating in those lifestyles. And we're becoming, we're compromising. We're in danger of compromising more and more. And we act like there'll be no consequences to that. Verse 16 says, repent. (laughs) Jesus says, hold on. There is consequences. Repent. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember the sword of his mouth is the word of God. The entire church is urged to repent from tolerating this kind of behavior from tolerating these false teachers in their sins. And he's telling them they need to repent or else they themselves will be judged with those that are living in the sin. Today's church must turn away from sin and these same types of false teachers and false teaching or else we'll face Christ's judgment. It just blows me away. We have more access to false teachers than ever before. And a number of people that ought to know better that will interact and engage with it and just eat that stuff up. He's telling the church it better discipline itself. He's telling us today through them the church better uh, discipline itself and not tolerate this kind of false teaching and this kind of sin within. Otherwise, he's going to come and he's going to remove their candlestick is what he's going to do. And then the last verse here. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give thee of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. For those that listen to what God is saying, to And when I say listen to what God is saying, listening to what God is saying to them through His Spirit. And those that listen to what God is saying to them through His Spirit and that remain faithful unto the end, that is the one that is the overcomer. That is the victor. They are the ones that will be nourished with the hidden manna. They are the ones that are going to be given uh, the white stone. They are the ones uh, with the white stone with the new name written in it. The overcomer is the child of God who refuses to compromise with the world and who who will not tolerate uh, the compromising of the word of God. They are those who don't care if it's politically correct or even if it's considered offensive. If it's the truth, if it's the word of God, uh, what the overcomer cares about is the truth. They care about faithfully serving God. Now there's a couple things here, real quick. The hidden manna. I think the hidden manna is Jesus Christ. I think that's why he sa- it says in John 6:51, Jesus said, "I am the living bread which come down, uh, which cometh there, or which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world." I think Jesus is that hidden man. Something that I think is interesting is compare, compare, um, contrast maybe, compare, contrast verse 17 with verse 14. You notice something? In verse 14, those that are on their way to hell, they're the ones eating things sacrificed to idols. And in verse 17, those that are on their way to heaven are the ones who are eating of the hidden manna that Christ has to offer. I think there's a reason why there's that comparison. Spiritually, what are you consuming? Spiritually, what is it that you are taking in? What is it that you are eating of? Probably the hidden manna, probably it is Christ, but it probably really represents All the blessings of knowing Christ. The white stone probably, the the white part of that definitely, probably uh, symbolizes the victory that we've been given in Christ. And and the new name could symbolize, now I don't know this for sure, but it could symbolize the fact that that the old man has passed away and the fact that we are a new creature in Christ. I know that it's speaking of the intimacy of that relationship with Christ. Now, why have I brought all this out here in the in the scriptures about this church, which is now no longer even in existence? Well, in the day and the time that we live in, it is especially tempting to compromise with the world. And if we do compromise with the world, then we become just like this church at Pergamos. And and our end result will be the same as what theirs was. To compromise on issues, issues that the world says we're crazy, that we're out of touch, uh, that we're referring to some ancient uh, book or document on, these things are the Word of God. To compromise on issues of sexuality, on issues of gender, right? It seems crazy and absurd right now, but give it a little time, right? It'll become just as normal as homosexuality has become. To compromise on issues of sexuality, on issues of gender, right? Really, what is that boiled down to? That's on issues of what is truth, right? What is truth, what is right, and what is wrong, what is real love, right? even on how we should live, what we should say and what we shouldn't say. Uh, Maybe it's because of age. I don't feel like I'm old yet, but I've already got to the point that I just—I decided the other day, I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to say what I'm going to say that's the truth, and I don't care what it is that they want to be referred to or as or whatever. The truth is the truth. If we compromise on how we should express our beliefs, even whether or not we should pray in public, mark my words. It's already people talk about times where they're offended by that. People mock and are offended whenever you whenever you make a comment. You know, somebody says, you're in our prayers, right? It's so much so that even the ones that who are faithful or should be or claim to be Christian, they'll say thoughts and prayers, in which I understand that if that's all that it meant, but it's a compromise with the world. And if you listen to most of them there, they won't even say, even though for years they'd say prayers and didn't really mean it, they won't even go that far and say it because people deem it offensive. Silly or nonsensical. Mark my words. The day is coming where it will be just as inappropriate to say that you're, to pray in public as it is to say so many of these other things that are now offensive. To witness the people. To compromise on these issues is to cease, to stop being the church and it's to start being just another social group. A political party, an activist group. Do you realize how close we are, church, into becoming just that? Into becoming nothing but a, an activist group, a political party, a social club. Compromise starts when we begin justifying sin in our own lives. That's why it says in 1 Peter, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner be? appear. Jennifer, will you come for a song of invitation? As Jennifer is coming for a song of invitation, I don't know your heart, and I don't know where you stand. I don't know what you might be going through, what the Lord might be dealing with you about. But I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And I'm going to open the altar, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to come this morning. If the Spirit of God is drawing you, If he's dealing with your heart, maybe he's convicting you about something. Maybe you're not where you ought to be with the Lord and you, you recognize that this morning. God has brought that to your attention. Now is the time to come. Now is the day of salvation. Don't wait any longer. Maybe God has burdened your heart with something. Maybe there's something you need to do that you've not done. I'm asking you, would you come this morning? Maybe you've got a burden on your heart for somebody who's lost and undone somebody who's fallen away somebody maybe who's never known christ somebody who you care about who's going the wrong way that's headed down a path to hell i'm asking you if god's burden your heart with them would you come pray for them this morning whatever the need whatever the burden here is don't miss this opportunity would you come this morning would you come this morning